Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Luke's Massive Storytelling Podcast Thing. Whoa yeah, here we go. Check it out now. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Luke's massive storytelling podcast thing. My name is Luke and this is my thing. I just got a, a lovely email this morning from Neil Porter, who had some very lovely things to say about the show. Uh, thanks, Neil. I just checked out his Instagram page, actually. And uh, Neil does these amazing hand-lettered typographic images, um, all with like real pens and real paper, and it looks amazing. Uh, definitely go check that out. Uh, his Instagram username is Neil Tony Porter. Uh, would love to see the podcast logo done in that style, actually. I might, I might ask you about that. Uh, but anyway, today's episode is an interview episode. Uh, it's all about indie publishing or self-publishing. Um, uh, the craft of writing and uh, you know independent storytelling. So, won't keep you for too much longer. Uh, enjoy the interview and um, yeah, see you on the other side. All right, bye. Garrett Robinson is most well known as the indie author behind the Nightblade Epic book series. He self published his first book in 2012 and swiftly followed it with a stream of others, publishing more than two million words by 2014. Uh, within months, he topped numerous bestseller lists. Now he spends his time writing books and directing films. Uh, he lives in LA with his wife, Megan, children, Dawn, Luke, and Desmond, and his dog, Chewbacca. How's that sound? Pretty fantastic. I see you've read my author bio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to use your Twitter one, but um, it's, it was a lot shorter. So I thought I'd it's use It's probably one. horribly out of date. I'm, I'm rarely on Twitter. Yeah. Um, so, so it says you're a filmmaker. Um, that's how you got started, right? Yeah, yeah, I uh started filmmaking way back in 2009. I mean, I'd been doing things before that, but that's when I really gave it a go uh and I was uh doing it full-time as a freelancer for 2 years and then well, if you think writing is a hard industry to get into, filmmaking is that times 10. Yeah. What what sort of um in what capacity were you working as a freelance filmmaker? Like directing or or running or what were you doing there? Well, that's the thing is that I, I wanted to direct. I, I love directing. It's it's my favorite thing in the world. And uh, nobody wants you to direct their film unless you've already directed a whole bunch of other films, hopefully which have either earned a lot of awards or have earned a lot of money. So I would uh, edit people's films and I would work on set as a script supervisor or an on-set uh, assistant director and it was basically impossible to graduate from that to, you know, being the head cheese. Uh, I had a bunch of scripts and story ideas, but nobody really wanted to make them. So that's when I got the idea of turning them into books. And it seems to have worked because since I started writing, I've act actually directed uh, up to this point, I think, a dozen 
films and they're all, you know, short films, but they were all paid for by other people who were interested. So, you know, cool. Well, so did they find you through your books? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Uh, More often in the beginning, especially, I would take the money that I made from selling books, you know, which wasn't very much in the beginning. And I would just turn it around and and fund a a low budget film by myself. Uh, And I did that a couple of times. And once I had made a few projects, then other people started wanting me to do their projects. And then they started footing the bill. And consequently, the bills got a lot bigger because, you know, the people who invest in films are usually people who have a little bit more at their disposal than the people who work on them. Yeah. And so um, are you looking to do your first feature length or or how far are you along that sort of path? Yeah. I uh, I have been working on getting a feature done. It's kind of hard to say. I mean, there's there's a saying in the industry that it's all BS until money's in the bank, yeah, and then it's yeah. all BS until cameras are rolling, <laughs> and yeah. then it's all BS until the film is on the screen and you know being actually played for people. So there's three levels of BS you have to work through before you can actually do it. Um, so I have been working on a feature. It's actually. I've got two that sort of have feelers out. One's a little bit uh, further along than the other, and they're actually both based on uh, my books. So that's kind of cool. Okay, cool. Um, which books are these? Uh, Touch is the one that's more uh, that's a little bit further along, simply because Touch is a much simpler story. It would require a lot less uh, resources, crew, all that sort of thing. And then the other one is Rebel Yell. Um, cool. Rebel okay. Yell yeah. is difficult just because it's it's bigger and also it requires like some licensing for music and all that sort of thing. But I do have somebody looking into you know whether we could get both of those uh, get both of those things together. So something. I mean, you're out, out and out an indie storyteller. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. you, you label yourself as such, and I really appreciate that sort of side of it. If you do get a feature-length film sort of funded and, and all the way to the screen, are you, would you release it independently, or how would you look to to do that side of it? Well, that sort of depends. I'm Mm. a big fan of indie filmmaking, and uh, my favorite indie filmmaking is, uh, from beginning to end, completely indie. But I also recognize that there's a lot of value. What, What a lot of people will do is they'll make a film independently with their own budget, their own creative control and everything, and then they'll sell it to the studios for distribution. And a lot of people don't even realize that that happens, but it it happens all the time. Not for, you know, your Marvel movies or whatever, but probably the most famous case, uh, especially since it got them into the Guinness Book of World Records, is uh, Paranormal Activity, right? Okay, you know that movie? Yeah. So they produced that themselves for $15,000, which is just the most ridiculously tiny movie budget you can imagine. Like, you know, that's that's some money to some people, but it's nothing in terms of making a film. And then they got the right people to look at it, and it got picked up and distributed by a studio, and it made uh, $65 million or something like that. Yeah, so yeah. It's, uh, it's the most profitable film ever made. Uh, it's actually in the uh, book of records for that. So that, that sort of thing, that's, like, that's a totally viable path. Um, I just don't want – I don't want to have, you know – 
studio influence or whatever from the beginning of the project trying to steer it. I want to make my own thing. And if somebody else wants to, you know, pick up the tab and distribute it, then I'm I'm fine with that. Cool. And if uh, if that doesn't happen, um, you could always go, you know, VHX or Vimeo on demand or something like that, I guess. Yeah, exactly. There's lots of, you know, YouTube has a paid option now. Um, there's lots of people out there. You know, Netflix is if you've already made a project, it's it's much easier to actually get Netflix to distribute it. And and, you know, a lot of people are, are doing that nowadays. Yeah, I've noticed Netflix. They um, well, in the UK, we have a slightly different catalog to the US, I think. But there's a lot oh, yeah. of like uh, YouTube YouTube web series and and stuff that, that video game high schools have ended up on there. So oh yeah, you never really know. I mean, you could just distribute. I mean, I've just finished reading um, Rebel Without a Crew. You know the Robert Rodriguez book. Yeah, yeah. Have you have you read that at all? No, I haven't. People keep telling me I need to, but my my reading time is is yeah. limited. Less so now. I'll I'll put it on my reading list because now I'm a, able to actually get myself a little bit of time each day. It's a little bit out of date in the sense of it's all about uh 35 millimeter film and whatnot but yeah it's the the general ethos behind it is is to just make the film and then you know get it distributed afterwards yeah but um yeah man it sounds good so and touch yeah i think that's what like filmmakers who really like love the art it's like just get something made you know i none of the none of the short films that i've ever you know short films don't like turn a profit they don't generate huge revenue no. um it, but but you love it, man. You really, really love it. And it, it should be the same thing, I think, no matter what you're doing, whether you're making movies or you're writing books. So what what short film of yours would you want people to watch? What's your calling card short? Oh, geez. I would <laughs> I would love for people to watch Unsaid, which was the film that I uh, we shot it last year and it released, um, I think, February of this year. Uh, but I, I, as I've often said, Unsaid is unfortunately like the least commercial piece ever. It's about a guy whose whose mother is is passing away from a severe illness. So it's and, like comedy, right? Exactly. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. people are just you know people who <laughs> have gone through something like that. They really, really like it. But it's not the sort of thing you you get your friends all together and be like, hey, let's watch this Friday night, and yeah. then you know go quietly cry in the corner. <laughs> cool. Uh, so and that's that's the one that's linked on your website, right? Yes, correct. Okay, so unsaid. Um, I'll link that in the show notes as well, so people can can check that out. But um, awesome. So tell me, because I think I came across you, stumbled upon you, probably through Sean and Johnny and those guys. Um, and oh, really? Of... I've never heard that before. That's pretty. <laughs> <laughs> but then, like, um, instantly, sort of fell in love with the the website, the sort of ethos behind what you're doing. Like it, like a lot of indie publishing. I have to say, it, it does have like a certain stinkiness to it, <laughs> but your yeah. every like everything seems on your website, especially seems to have a, a sheen of professionalism to it. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, I mean, indie indie publishing is like any indie art form, whether it's YouTube. You know, there's a lot of amazing YouTube channels, and I think because YouTube is more of a thing and more sort of in the cultural zeitgeist, people people think of YouTube as like, oh no, there's a lot of really good YouTube channels out there, and it, the the first thing they think about YouTube isn't the number of terrible, awful, awful videos and channels there are on YouTube. They think, oh, I've seen a lot of things on YouTube that I like. And for some reason, self-publishing is still going through this, this period where the first pe thing people think is, oh, this is a bunch of slush pile stuff and they don't necessarily have the the name recognition of you know the 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 people who are doing really 
good things on it. So I, I, I try to be one of the good people and not one of the slush piles. Yeah, I think um, you sort of have to start with like professionalism and like from the cover and the ground up and everything. Otherwise, yeah. it's very easy to get lumped in with. I mean, <laughs> there is a lot of good good stuff published stuff out there, but there's also a lot of a lot of crap as well. Yes, um, and I think you you definitely with your stuff you've separated yourself, which is which is ideal. I do my um, best. Thanks. <laughs> so, tell us how you got into writing books. Well, okay, so uh, I was uh, I was doing the filmmaking thing, and I had a friend, uh, a guy named Zach Bolger, who writes under the name ZC Bolger, and he um, has always wanted to be a writer, and he was working on his uh, first kids' uh, book. Uh, called uh, Danny Calloway and the Puzzle House, uh, which is a, a, a great book, by the way. Um, sure. I say that as the editor. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he had struck upon the idea of self-publishing because he was you know, pursuing the traditional deal and the publishing house and all that. And then he found the self-publishing podcast after he started researching self-publishing. And he told me, you got to listen to these guys because I think that you could take your scripts and you could publish them as books. And I was, I was very, no, I mean, come on, that's ridiculous. Uh, but I promised I would start listening to the podcast. So I listened to everything that they'd recorded up to that point. And I think they just finished their first year when I started. Yeah. And almost immediately I was like, holy crap, I could actually do this. So I wrote, um, my, my, the the film that I had like in its most complete state, I turned that into a book first, and that was Touch, um, and uh, which is probably going to be retitled, uh, but uh, it's it's Touch currently. Cool. And that's, that's uh, wrong with that. yeah, <laughs> and that was uh, that was more successful than I thought it would be. And it started, it started making a little money. And then I wrote, um, I wrote, you know, the next book and the next. And five months after that. I think it was five. Yeah. Five months after I published my first book, um, I actually lost my nine to five job that I was working at that time. And when I came home completely so, devastated, so you didn't quit. You, you got fired. No. So, yeah. I got okay. not, not fired. People okay. always tell me, I'm like, I'm always like, <laughs> yeah, I got fired. And they're like, no, no, no. Fired is when it's like you screwed up and whatever. But basically the company just downsized and I was one of the ones. So people are always like, no, you got to say you, you got let go. I'm you like, were, okay, you whatever. were jettisoned. Like, yeah, uh, I, yeah. <laughs> I was working there and then I was suddenly not like that's, that's <laughs> cool. all there is to it. So in terms of your financial uh, status at the time, was that like a big impact? Were you like, oh crap, I need to Oh God. Yeah. I wasn't, um, I wasn't anywhere close to earning what, you know, a, a full-time living off of writing at that point, mm. uh, which was the first thing on my mind. But when I came home completely devastated, you know, I, I told m uh, my wife what had happened and she was like, you know, I bet if you went full-time, you could make the writing thing work, which is just not what you expect your wife to say when you come home and tell her that you got laid off. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, but I did. And so I started I was doing a lot of freelance work um, right off the bat. And a lot of it was for Sean and Johnny, who I had already been, um, you know, uh, working with on things for some time. But they basically gave me a lot of work, a lot of referrals. And that kept me going uh, long enough until, you know, writing became more of a thing. And now now it's my full time thing. Now I don't need to do anything other than just write, which is a pretty nice place to be. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So which uh, book was it where you realized, oh, this could actually work? 
I had a hope that things could actually work off the first book. Cause like I said, I was expecting the whole thing of like putting out touch and then, you know, my parents would buy it and, and that would be about it. Mm. Uh, but, uh, but it was more than that. Uh, so I was, I was hopeful from that point when I put out the realm keeper series, which incidentally was co-written with ZC Bolger, the, the guy who got me to start doing it in the first place. That was the first time where I saw an audience reaction that I was like, whoa, this is this is actually a thing. It wasn't it wasn't quite where it needed to be in order to, you know, make it a, a full time thing. But it was really close. And then Nightblade was uh, was the tipping point and particularly um, the third the third book in the Nightblade series uh, was was really what pushed it over the edge, as well as, you know, all of the marketing things that I'd learned from working with Johnny and Sean uh, for years. Uh, just applying that was kind of like flipping a switch where suddenly everything was all pink and rosy and rainbows and unicorns and yeah. stuff. So a lot of people getting into writing books and self-publishing are probably going to think it's only going to take them two or three books or uh-huh. The first book's going to take off, and that's going to be them them story yeah. for the next few years. Um, obviously, that's not true. <laughs> no, and, um, no. Like to those people, I would say, you know, good good pluck. You got you got gumption, and I like that. But you are wrong. Yeah, um, that is not what's going to happen at all. So, what was the difference between um, the one that did break out, the Nightblade book, and the ones well, before? Yeah, that's an interesting thing, uh, and I've been thinking about it a lot uh, recently. Actually, uh, there there is this this um, adage and this sort of advice that you know the best marketing for your first book is your second book, and the best marketing for your second book is your third book. Like, just keep writing, keep putting material out. That is very very true. And for two and a half years, that was my total um, operating basis. You. Know, liked it too, uh, because, you know, I did have to pull in a lot of freelance stuff to actually make sure I was, I was, you know, doing what I needed to financially for my family. But really the, the turning point, like what I didn't realize is that once you do have the catalog, like you have to get the catalog there, but once you do have a, a, a backlist or a series with, with a good number of books in the series, that's when, the your 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 game plan switches from oh write the next book write the next book to start marketing what you've got and okay. it was that was the difference was i started doing you know i started doing facebook ads uh taught by uh mark dawson and uh nick stevenson's course and of course all of the stuff that i uh learned from the self publishing podcast and what I, I had been ignoring those things because I didn't have a catalog. And then this year it was like, okay, let's start actually doing some, some real marketing. And I did that and then also got a book club ad. And, um, and that was, uh, that was what really made the difference for me. So in terms of, um, the nitty gritty of the marketing, um, so the book club ad, ad, I mean, I know that's pretty difficult to get nowadays. Um, so, so if someone just starting out, what would you say to them to do? Just start writing, building up the catalog, or yeah, just starting out. Definitely, your first priority is building up the catalog because a bookbub ad is hard to get. But if you're submitting one book for a bookbub ad, um, that's really hard to get. If you're submitting eight different books 
for a BookBub ad, you've just automatically increased your odds eight times. And then, of course, anything that you can do to make your book look more attractive, the more reviews you have, the more um, the the higher your sales rank, anything that you can do to boost that is awesome. But BookBub is always going to be BookBub is never going to be more than a really good month. It's not going to be the mm. foundation for what you're doing. It's going to be it's going to be a really excellent boost that if you if you handle it well will raise your overall level of sales and response and marketing effectiveness but it's never going to be your be-all end-all strategy um for anybody just starting out honestly and i feel i feel so bad saying this but just starting out right now this could change you know next month next week or tomorrow but right now, going KDP Select is probably a good option for new authors. Um, it gives you a lot of tools to help sell your book better. And you can always leave KDP Select later, you know. But I made the decision on Nightblade a few months ago to go select Amazon exclusive. And I I hate being exclusive, but the the you know, I it was it was difficult to gain traction on any other platform. And just by switching to select, I was immediately just completely justifying the cost. Now, the thing that sucks about that is that you're exclusive. Your audience is, you know, by default limited. But you can always expand onto the other platforms again. Um, it's just a really good place to start out. So for for anybody who is just beginning their career, just writing and getting ready to uh, self-publish their first book, I, I would recommend it right now. Again, that could completely change at any time. Um, but that, that just speaks to a broader point, which is that you have to be, you have to pay constant attention to what's happening in the industry, what's working for people and what's not. And, and, um, how, how, and are people, how are people stay in touch with what's, what's going on? Well, I mean, there's, you know, numerous podcasts, uh, Johnny and Sean, <laughs> yeah. self-publishing podcast, obviously, uh, and um, Joanna Penn's uh, The Creative Pen Podcast. Those uh, podcasts are awesome for this kind of thing because they're weekly and yeah. they're always updating on stuff like that. And maybe the latest changes aren't the focus of their podcast, but they'll always talk about it. Um, David Gogren's blog is also good. Uh, he um, used to update a lot more than he does currently, but, um, I think he's going to be picking back up again, um, pretty shortly. I know he just had a big book release. Um, he has like invaluable data and then there's things like the Kindle boards, which a lot of people keep up on the latest and greatest on the Kindle boards. I actually, I, I don't visit the Kindle boards, but if, if for somebody who prefers more of like an online forum type environment, that is that's a really good place to be. Uh, when I found the Kindleboard, I spent so much time on there. It was a bit of a time suck. I found myself yeah. doing that rather than doing the stuff that I should actually be doing, like editing words and, and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, whereas, and pod, whereas podcasts, you can do that when you're washing the pots or just going right. for a walk or whatever. Yeah. So you had some success, and then then the Rebel Yell happened, so, <laughs> which is like a literary novel, right? Yeah. Rebel Yell is my favorite book that never sells, ever. Okay. Um, which is kind of unfortunate, but it is literary. I knew that was going to happen. What made you sit down and sort of write it? What sort of gave you the impetus to start with that? Well, Rebel Yell is is about an indie band uh, where the uh, lead singer is this brilliant singer songwriter, and the and everybody in the band is is very good. But the lead singer Steve he wants 
um, he wants traditional. He wants the the record label and the you know the the deal and the the paid for tour and all that sort of thing. And his lead guitarist uh, Tanya is like, D- let's let's basically self publish, right? So I had three years, uh, well at the time actually two years of experience in an industry uh, where indies were kind of you know put down all the time and like you said had the stink. And traditional was held as this this great and and wonderful uh, bastion of artistic quality and integrity, but it was the same industry that was putting out you know Snooky's autobiography and just recently came out with Twilight Reimagined, which is just um, right. <laughs> something I'm not a big fan of. Let's yeah. just leave it at that. Okay. And I uh, so Rebel Yell is actually a very thinly veiled uh, criticism of traditional media versus indie art in in general. And I really wanted to write that book. And I also wanted to write something that that I could hold up in in people's faces if they said, "Well, you write genre." You know, it's like yeah. it's easy to write a fantasy story. You just have somebody cast a fireball every few pages, and <laughs> everything's good. And this doesn't happen and, in Rebel Yell. No, there are okay. very few fireballs in Rebel Yell. <laughs> okay, I had to cool. cut my I, I, I toned myself way down on the fireballs. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so that was uh, also important to me was like, can I just write, you know, because I'm a big fan of of a lot of uh, literary authors like, uh, you know, John Green is the is the one who I read everything uh, of his and and love his work. And he doesn't require any genre conventions to tell an incredibly compelling story. So I wanted to give it a shot and see if I could do it too. And I think I did okay. And people like it. So there yeah, you go. But they don't buy it. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be there available forever, essentially, I'm guessing, right? So yes. it's, it's, it could always find an audience later on down the line. I mean, you never really know this sort of thing. It's totally. weird to me that like um, one of my favorite authors, uh, Haruki Murakami, his most... Mm-hmm famous book or is is norwegian wood which is the only book that that isn't like an Murakami novel um mm-hmm. i don't really know how people found that above above the others maybe maybe it's a whole traditional publishing thing i don't know so yeah. what, what are you working on next what's um what's going to be coming out in the future with the books well the most important thing for me right now is to uh complete books four five and six in the nightblade series and it's uh, going to be nine in total right no, there's no, going to be just oh. going to be basically until I feel like the series is done. Oh. Um, I kind of uh, I want to I'm I'm moving towards making the books a little bit more self-sufficient so that you could like the first trilogy is very necessary. But later books, I uh, and including very much including four. I want anybody to be able to pick them up and enjoy them without having read everything that came before. Uh, because there's lots of series that I read that are like that, and I, I quite enjoy them. So basically, you could you could think of it as like the Jack Reacher of fantasy, where the books aren't even written in chronological order, and you can pick any one of them up and just really, really like it. Um, so four, five, and six are my top priority. Um, but also, in as soon I want to get those done fast, and you know, so that they're they're ready to release every every uh, few months. And then I want to start a, a pet project that I've had in mind for quite some time, um, a sci-fi uh, space opera um, that uh, that's just been kicking around in my head and sort of satisfies a very Doctor Who-like uh, obsession that I have. Um, 
because I freaking love that show. And it's um, it's a long obviously it's not a Doctor Who book, but it's sort of along those lines and just sort of something that I've wanted to do for a while. And I figured if I could get far enough ahead on on, you know, Nightblade, then I can actually take the time and do it. Does so this uh, does this new book have any sort of London references? Because if you ever need any uh, help with that, I can take some it pictures. It does not. <laughs> oh, okay. um, it could. It could though. Maybe. Uh, maybe. I. I. I want it to have. I mean, I grew up on you know Monty Python and and mm. Black Adder and and you know English comedies and and um and obviously Doctor Who is is not like that at all. But it. I hadn't I hadn't watched any programs like that in a really long time. And so when somebody turned me on to Doctor Who and then later a, a year after I started watching Doctor Who and I was still catching up, somebody tar- turned me on to Sherlock. It's there's this flavor to those shows that I just I I didn't realize I was missing until I started watching it again and I was like, "Oh my god, it's just it's it's something so entirely different. Is this um, the uh, the Cumberbatch um, Sherlock? Yes. Yeah, it, it is. It is really good. Um, he is for me the best Sherlock I think I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, like fantastic. He's, he's really incredible. I don't like to compare people who play the same role because mm. as a as a filmmaker, like I know, I know that everybody who goes in is is really trying to to do their own thing and so i always see them as like like i never try and judge who the best bond is yeah. you know because everybody's trying to do their own thing of course there are some bonds that are that are just objectively <laughs> terrible but not speaking to that um yeah so that's sort of the the impetus behind the uh the space opera but it's it's like earth is a distant memory it's not it it, it has no uh place on earth whatsoever Okay, cool. So London isn't in isn't in it. <laughs> no. Okay. No, so uh, that's okay. But um, so you published more than two million words uh, by mm-hmm. within two years, I, I guess. Is that is yeah. that sound about right? So, yeah. maybe could you take us like into a bit of detail on how what you're publishing and your writing process is like? Like, how long does it take to plan out a novel? Do you plan? Do you plot, or do you just sort of pants it and sit down and write? How does that work? No, I'm a I'm a rabid plotter. I I. I tried pantsing a novel once. I got three, I think three chapters in, and I was just like, oh my God, what is even happening? <laughs> like I was so confused. And I I never self-edit while I'm working, but just because I knew it wasn't working, I went back and I read what I'd already written. And I was like, I'm gonna have to like none of this is gonna survive. This is all terrible. It's all crap. So I'm a very big plotter. Um, some would say that I plot in too much detail, but I I plot as much as I feel like I need to. Yeah. And um, I uh, I sit down. I start very very big, and I describe basically my entire book in a single sentence, and then I break it down into a paragraph, and then four paragraphs, and then um, you know a few pages, and then by that point, I'm usually ready to sit down and write the whole book out in scene by scene descriptions. Like okay. in this scene, blah happens. In this scene, blah happens. And then um, I used to I used to try and structure it into chapters um, at that point, but now I actually just write scene by scene, and then I decide when I'm actually putting the book together where the chapters break and where they don't. So, okay. So, um, and how long does that process normally take, or is that does that change with every book? It uh, it actually mostly depends on the length of the book. Um, so Nightblade is a fantasy series, but it's not um, 
it's not as uh, hefty as people generally associate with fantasy. You know, each of the uh, Wheel of Times books, a uh, Wheel of Time books, for example, is about a quarter of a million words long. And um, my Realm Keeper series, uh, the first two books, each one is about a quarter of a million words long. Um, Nightblade is a uh, hundred thousand words long, so it's about half the time that it takes me to do uh, the Realm Keepers books. But um, I actually have been tracking my uh, time uh, that I've been working on each of the Nightblade books, and it's about ninety hours, um, ninety hours from beginning to end. But that sounds like That's oh well, if work, yeah. yeah, if you work a forty-hour week, you could do it in two weeks. Well, I can't. I can't write for eight hours a day. I just can't. Like, yeah. I, maybe this is a great failing of mine, but like, holy cow, my brain <laughs> just turns off very quickly. So, um, so it usually takes me, um, well, I'll say in the past, it has taken me about a month, uh, sorry, about two months of dedicated time. Um, but now I have somebody else doing my covers. I have somebody else editing my books. Um, so basically I can, I can get a Nightblade book done in, in under a month. Okay. So, and, um, when you're sitting down to, so you've got your outline all planned out, um, yeah. you sit down and you think, right, I'm going to start writing now. Uh, how many sort of words are you doing per session? And like, how, how long are you sitting down for? Well, I, uh, I don't, uh, some people have a problem sharing how much they produce, how fast they okay. write. Um, I don't because I found it very inspiring to hear what other people were doing, but I do realize why people don't like sharing that data. Um, so I always like to add a caveat, which is like, you should not compare yourself to anybody else's production level in terms of your success or failure. Um, if you hear a number that sounds really, really high to you, then just realize that you are a different person than the person that you're hearing about, right? Yeah. So, I mean, George R. R. Martin is probably the best paid writer uh, alive today, and he only writes 500 words a day. So it's like you're you're fine. Whatever you can do, as long as you do it consistently and reliably, reliably is fine. Um, I will generally write 2,500 words an hour. If I'm really on a roll, I can hit four uh, four thousand. Um, but that's, uh, that's pretty, pretty few and far between. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think the way I got into your YouTube vlog, uh, was through one of your videos when you had a particular, particularly high number of words. Uh, how many yeah. words was it again? That was, uh, that was 50,000 words in three days. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that is, that is ludicrous. Like That was a good if, week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how did that work? How did you write 50,000 words in three days? Um, I, well, I was really on a roll and, um, I had instituted a policy, which I have slipped from since then. And I need to get back in now that I'm beginning work on the fourth book, uh, or continuing work on the fourth book, I should say, yeah. um, which is that I wake up in the morning. I'm not allowed to look at my phone, my iPad or anything on the internet until I've done my writing for the day. And when my brain is exhausted and I can no longer put words down, um, then I'm allowed to check my email. Like I'm not, I, I can't check my email. I'm not allowed to look at Twitter. Like I don't look at anything online until I'm done with my 
you know, writing for the day. That's when I was doing that, incredibly difficult. How did you? Oh my God. It's so hard. It's so, which is why I, I slipped out of that routine. And every time I slip out of that routine, my writing suffers. So, um, one, one goal that I have before the end of the year is, uh, hiring an assistant, uh, which I can, you know, finally do now. And their primary job is going to be keeping me away. Like you heard that story of the guy who hired an assistant um, and they would have the assistant sit with them at Starbucks while they were writing. And every time the writer went to Facebook, the assistant's job was to slap him in the face. It's um, not Ramit Sethi, it's his brother. Yeah, so I don't want to go that far, but I need somebody to do that for me, to keep me off it. Because it's, the thing is, is that it's not, it's not um it's not an invalid desire to wake up and want to check your email, you know, have I received any important emails, anything I need to take care of right away. But if you can have somebody handling that for you or at least just making sure that nothing's on fire, um then I I know that my writing would be quite productive. One like one day during that um 3-day period where I wrote 50,000 words, on one of those days I wrote 27,000 words in a day. Like that was a really good day, you know? Yeah. So there's no reason that I, I, I will not be able to write 27,000 words a day every day, but there's no reason that I couldn't be doing a lot more than I am now. Um, I calculated my, my potential based off of that. Mm. And at like my full, full potential, um, I, uh, at the time I had published, uh, one and a half million words, uh, but I could have published 15 million words. So there's, you know, maybe that's a little bit pie in the sky uh, to do that much in three years, but I could be doing better than I am now. And that's the other thing to remember is that you can always improve. And if you're not working and trying to improve, then chances are you're going to um, get yeah. get worse. <laughs> there's um, no one word for that, is there? Well, I always think of the shark that stops swimming. It dies, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, you got to be a shark. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this uh, assistant you're going to hire to slap you in the face, are they going to ha- have access to your emails or something? Or how is that yeah. going to work? Yeah, I want them to, uh, I, I want them to basically manage um, pretty much my entire online presence, uh, including running uh, my vlog and novel channel, because uh, as as dumb as this sounds, Sometimes the reasons that I don't do any writing in a whole day is because I just can't be buggered to. Oh, sorry. It's fine. We say okay. we say buggered all the time over here. It's fine. Fantastic. <laughs> I just can't. Uh, I can't bother setting up the live stream. So you know, in my perfect world, my little dream world, I wake up, I have my coffee, I walk into my office, and the stream is ready to go. I sit down, I push the button and I start writing, you know, like that would be the thing that they would do. They would check my emails, they'd delete the mountain of spam that I get every day and then they'd forward, you know, any important emails onto me so that I could actually answer them. They'd check online, make sure that, you know, if anybody asked me a question on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, I like to answer people um as quickly as I can. So if I get a question, then they, you know, they just forward it on to me, but honestly, there's no other reason for me to be on Facebook other than to receive communication from people. Like I definitely don't get a lot of quality content, valuable content on Facebook. I have a, I have a long history of kind of despising Facebook, even though it's a, like it's a place where a lot of people like to hang out and, you know, 
I, I don't want to say unfortunately, but unfortunately, a lot of my readers are on Facebook. So I kind of have to be there, but I don't, I don't enjoy it as a user at all. Um, even though every time I go there, I end up spending a lot more time than I want to because it, it it's designed to be addictive and to make you spend time on the website. You know, that's how they work. So um, I would much rather have somebody handling my Facebook presence for me. So just out of uh, personal curiosity, I guess, um, what would your ideal day look like, your ideal working day? Yeah, so ideal ideal day, I get up, I have my coffee, um, which I'll make myself. I don't need an assistant to make my coffee. <laughs> okay. I like that ritual as well. Yeah. Um, I have my coffee. I walk in. My live stream for Vlog and Novel is ready to go. Um, and I, you probably know Vlog and Novel, right? I, I yeah. live stream all of my writing. Okay. Yeah. So I stream Vlog and Novel for an hour, take a break, come back, stream it for another hour. And probably after three, four, maybe five hours of log and novel. I'm done with my writing for the day. Um, at that point I would make my YouTube video for the day, uh, which is usually the process of about an hour. If I had an assistant, it would be the process of about 15 to 20 minutes. Cause then I just have to sit, write the script and record it. And then they would edit it. Um, and then I would handle whatever other, you know, business type stuff that I had to do check on uh, check on my advertisements and uh, handle any emails that my assistant would have forwarded to me and all that sort of thing there's you know there's a lot of administration that goes into it you are your own uh, your own business your own publisher uh, when you're doing this yeah so yeah that so, would be a that would be a fantastic day actually I, I got to live that day for a very brief period of time earlier this year before um, before I hit my like my big milestone this year um we we basically uh tried to hit that milestone my wife used to run a daycare she closed the daycare and um was my assistant for four uh, i think four weeks mm. and holy cow that was like the best time of my life you know she got to take care of so much stuff that i didn't need to take care of anymore and i was super productive and i was writing all the time and and I didn't even have to pay her. It was fantastic. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so that was uh, that. That was really like my ideal day, and I just want to get back to that. Cool. Basically, um, so I'll I'll let people know you need an assistant. <laughs> Are you advertising or? No, I actually have somebody in mind. Um, okay. It's it's either going to be it, it's probably not going to be my wife again because she's now you know doing things that she really enjoys. Um, but um, but I, I do have somebody in mind. We're actually already in talks and trying to work out how it would all work. Cool. Okay. So um, so you mentioned briefly uh, we haven't really talked about the vlogging side of it, but that sounds like quite a big a big side of you uh, and yeah. your sort of endeavors. Um, yeah. What so vlogging? In all honesty, I, I know sort of very little about. Uh, but I watch Good Mythical Morning. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes and um and and your vlog. I think that's pretty much it. So tell us a bit about about the vlog and and the topics you discuss. Well, I had a uh, I started a YouTube channel um for my own podcast uh, because my business plan has always been do whatever you know Johnny and Sean are doing. So um so I had my own podcast for a while and then every once in a while I would just make a a video about 
something because I had attention on it. Sometimes it was a tutorial video teaching somebody how to do something technical, like uh, publish a book to Kindle or whatever. Um, and sometimes it was a video about my opinions on something. So uh, I was actually uh, guesting on um, Buddy Gott's uh, podcast. Mm. I forget what what he calls it, but I've always just thought of it as Buddy Gott's podcast. And he was like, you know, I, I really love those videos you used to do all the time. Um, you should consider doing something like that again. And it was a few days before January, before January 1st, 2014. So I was like, okay, I'm New Year's resolution. I'm going to have an actual YouTube channel. So I started a YouTube channel and I started making videos every day. God, they were, they were so bad. They were so <laughs> bad. Um, I went back, I, I watched one just yesterday because it related to something that another YouTuber that I liked had made a video about. And I went back and I watched it. I think it was my 10th video since I started making YouTube videos every day and God, it was terrible, but I could still see what I liked about my videos in it. Right. Yeah. So I started making that every day. And after, um, after a few weeks, maybe, a, maybe a month, month and a half. A friend, an old high school friend who I was connected to on Shutter Facebook, um, messaged me and was like, "You really remind me of the Vlog Brothers, John and Hank Green." And I was like, "I who who are you talking about? I don't know who these people are." So he told me I had to watch them, and I went and I started watching their videos. And oh my god, they were doing exactly what I wanted to do on YouTube, except I didn't know that I wanted to do it until I'd seen them doing it. Yeah. So that's when I considered myself to get like really into YouTube, which means honestly, I'm really late on the bandwagon. You know, it came out in 2007, and John and Hank Green, the Vlog Brothers, have been doing it full time since 2007. Um, so I was seven years late to the party. But in fact, I got so involved in it and so into it that I went to Hank Green's YouTube convention that year and I went again this year. And uh, yeah, so I have a, a going concern of a YouTube channel and then my secondary channel, Vlog a Novel, um, which is much more of like it, – it's a very niche audience. Um, but uh, But basically, I just make videos. I try to make them every day, but I'm usually not able to. It's usually more like three or four a week and they're just about – Pretty much whatever I want. Um, yeah. I talk about fantasy and sci-fi a lot because that's what I love. But then sometimes I'll talk <laughs> about, you know, social issues and whatever. Um, I really like it. It's not like um, you're not doing this for like a marketing for your books and films, right? It's like a it's another creative endeavor rather than a marketing act itself. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd be lying if there wasn't if I said there wasn't a lot of cross promotion there. And I I strongly encourage my readers to go follow me there because I. I like talking to them. You know, it's, it's the thing that I always say about marketing is that if it feels skeezy, you're doing it wrong. Mm. So like, yes, the YouTube channel is marketing for my books. A lot of people find my books after they find my YouTube channel, but I do it because I like it. It's a very close connection with my readers. It, it It's this balance. Um, writing a book, even, even writing one pretty fast. And people would say that I write books pretty fast. It's still a long endeavor. You're, you're still talking about a couple of months from idea to completion and it's out there and probably longer after that until you start getting reviews and all that sort of thing. 
YouTube is so immediate. It's a nice balance. You make a video and that day you're getting views and comments and, and hearing from people. You're getting immediate gratification on feedback of something that you're doing. So that's something that I really love about it. And, um, and this is kind of annoying, but like a lot of people will come to my YouTube channel and tell me what they thought about my last book. And I'm like, thank you so much. Could you please go leave that in a review on Amazon? And they <laughs> yeah. rarely do. Yeah. But, um, but I, I really do enjoy it. And I have made, um, a lot of, of friends who I would consider close personal friends just on YouTube where the, you know, they, they haven't read my books and don't know me anywhere other than my YouTube channel. People who do find your vlog and sort of start watching your videos and everything, they, they, they could well stumble onto your books from there though, right? Oh yeah. It happens all the time. I get that. I get that a lot. Um, you know, cause, uh, to me, my YouTube channel is a lot like an email list. You know, I let them know when I put out yeah. a new book. So a good portion of my videos are about my books. So, yeah. So just um, one more question then, really. Um, who are your favorite storytellers and what are your favorite stories? Oh, boy. Okay, <laughs> well, yeah, I want to I I preface by saying that um, I'm – very conscious of the difference between favorite and best. Okay. Um, like I, I, I recognize, um, that, you know, citizen Kane is one of the best films of all time. But if, a if me and a bunch of friends are going to sit down and watch a movie on a Saturday night, I'm not likely to suggest citizen Kane. It's an incredible piece of filmmaking that I value tremendously, but it's not my favorite, right? So I just want to preface that because people are always like, that's not the best. The technical quality of this is so much better. And I'm like, yeah, okay, but that's not my favorite. Yeah. So um, my favorite book is Lord of the Rings. And I um, am, am fully aware of the fact that, you know, how much has come since then in fantasy and everything. But to me, that's just, I, I read that book once a year. I read it earlier this year. I'm going to read it again early next year. It's just incredible. Is that including, um, including The Hobbit as well, or do you skip past that one? No, I mean, I like The Hobbit. I enjoy it, and I, I read it as part of the, as part of the, um, the yearly ritual. But yeah. it's not, uh, it's not same level to me okay. at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, Lord of the Rings is just is just a cut above. And um so that's my favorite. Um another favorite storyteller of mine, although a very problematic one, is um Orson Scott Card, because Ender's Game will always be one of my favorite books, period. Um unfortunately, Orson Scott Card is a bit of uh, I believe you have a term uh wanker. <laughs> that's something I've, that we some of us say. Uh, not all of us. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> He is uh, he is one of those in his uh, in his personal life, which is is really, really, really weird. I wonder if he's not just trolling because his books are so different from his espoused worldview and his own personal political agenda. It's it, it's quite bizarre. But Ender's Game is is simply one of the best um, science fiction books of all time. Like nothing will ever change that. I, I adore that whole series, although yeah. most people think it went downhill. Um <laughs> And and in terms of the films based off those books, are you happy with them? I think that Lord of the Rings, uh, again, Lord of the Rings is my favorite film of all time. I can, you know, as as a whole, um, I uh, I got into filmmaking because of the Lord of the Rings, and it's still like my gold standard in terms of creating an amazing story visually. Um, as if you take the scale, the epic quality of my love 
for Lord of the Rings <laughs> and you turn it into a photographic negative. That's how I feel about Ender's Game. I was so upset by that film um, that I actually. Oh, boy, it's um, I'm likely to have some sort of physical fit if I talk about it too much. But I, I really despise that. Uh, okay. That movie. Yeah. <laughs> cool. No, that's that's a good note to to end on. But um, <laughs> cool. Um, so in terms of so Lord of the Rings book and the Lord of the Rings film, that that are two main ones, right? And then the Ender's Game yeah. book as well. Okay. Cool. Yeah. All right, man. Um, so is there anywhere that my listeners can sort of follow you? I mean, there's the YouTube vlog. Uh, there's your uh your website. Uh, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, Garrett Author. With uh, two T's and Garrett. Yeah, the website's good. Um, YouTube is honestly probably the best. Uh, mostly my YouTube, uh, my website, my blog is just me sharing links to my videos. So, um, yeah, YouTube is definitely the best place to uh, keep up with what's going on. Cool. All right, man. Thank you very much for doing this. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we just penciled in a couple of seven-day story challenges. Uh, so look forward to those. Also, uh, check out our story studio, Hawk and Cleaver. It has a new website, uh, Um There's a lots of cool stuff we're going to be doing. We've got books and Kickstarter campaigns next year. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so here's one thing you could do for me. If you do enjoy the show, uh, tweet me or email me. That's lukeofcondor at me.com or at lukeofcondor. And uh, tell me what your favourite word is. And then on the next show, I'll tell you what mine is. That's how it works. All right? (laughs) Cool. All right. See you later. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.